to the Bible now, and um, if you want to follow uh, the reading, it's from Hebrews uh, chapter 1, and we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 3 in a few moments' time. Last week, Edward uh, kicked us off on a new series in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and if you've not listened to it, I would encourage you to listen to it on SoundCloud. It was a fantastic overview and introduction, and today we're going to dive into this letter. And as I've reread it again in um, preparation, it sounds to me more like a preach than a letter. It, It reads more like a spoken word than a written word. And as uh, Edward said last week, it doesn't come with, you know, I, Paul, or I, Peter, or, you know, there's no introduction like that, as many of the other letters in the New Testament have. And there's no addressee of, you know, writing to the church in, whatever it may be. And whether that's because as it was written, and we believe it was to be written about A.D. 68, um, before the fall of Jerusalem, we think, because I think that would have been mentioned in some way or another in the writing, Um, the church is experiencing severe persecution. And whether the writer just said, well, it's better to be anonymous at this moment or not, we don't know. We don't know who the writer is. It's sometimes been called the fifth gospel, but it's definitely written to a church that was under pressure and under persecution. Many have lost property. Some had been imprisoned. Some had been killed. Leaders of the early church, like Paul and Peter, had been executed. James had been executed. There was persecution from Rome, from the empire. There was persecution from Jerusalem, from the Jewish authorities as well. So the church is really under pressure. And there may have been those within the church asking the question, Is it worth it? (laughs) They were tired as well and weary. Persecution wearies the church. It's heavy. So the writer to the Hebrews, as he preaches this message in written words, says, and he dives straight in. Yes, it is. It is worth it. Because he is worth it. He is worth it everything. How do we strengthen persecuted believers? Well, the writer returns to it again and again in this message is look up and see Jesus. Because the tactic of the enemy in persecution or even in the stuff we go through in life, his tactic is you take your eyes off Jesus because when you do, You focus on the waves or the wind or the turbulence or everything that is going on other than Jesus. And that's when we begin to feel helpless. That's when we begin to feel abandoned. And that's the enemy tactic. So he dives straight in in, uh, and he repeats in chapter 12, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I've called this talk, Jesus Is. And I hope I don't just mess it up. Because if I've read this passage again and again and again, I told Edward this midweek. I said, it's just such a brilliant passage. I'm likely just to make a mess of it. 
but I'm going to have a go anyway. But I want to read it to you. It's breathtaking. And bear in mind, this sentence is just one sentence. The writer doesn't take a breath. There's no punctuation. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. (sighs) Breathed. It's written in the most exquisite Greek. One sentence. We live in a society that recognizes the necessity of good communication, and so did the writer here. He captures the attention of all his listeners. He knows the situations that he's writing to. He knows the context that he's writing to. And he captures their imagination with one breathtaking sentence. And he contrasts the old communication. So there's a contrast in era, in the past, but in these last days. The recipients to our ancestors, that's why we believe it's written by someone from a Jewish perspective, Jewish ancestry. But now it's written to us. The agents, it came through the prophets, God spoke through the prophets, but now he has spoken by his son. And he spoke in various ways, but now he has spoken in one way. Jesus, the only way. Do you know, as you get older, you get more like your parents? I know, it's a bit of a shock to you all. I've started watching Antiques Roadshow. <laughs> My parents used to watch that, and I used to, you know, what are these old fogies watching that for? I quite like it. <laughs> they have this thing called Basic Better Best, where the Fiona Bruce has to guess. God spoke in creation. It was basic. Everyone can see. God spoke through the prophets at various times, in various ways, better. But now he has spoken to us through his son. Best. I know some of you watch it as well. He grabs their attention. He begins by asserting the greatest single fact of the Christian message that God has spoken, revealed himself supremely through Jesus. Jesus has closed the greatest communication gap ever between sinful human beings and a holy God. And for those who were contemplating abandoning their faith because it was just too hard For those who are weary and asking, is it worth it? He begins with these amazing statements about Jesus. To enable us to lift our eyes that whatever is going on, to see Jesus. Eight amazing 
things about Jesus. I don't know if you've been watching um, The Chosen. Have you heard of The Chosen? Some of you may have heard of The Chosen. I love it. I really recommend it. It's the first multi-season TV series about the life and ministry of Jesus. There have been films. There have been sort of, uh, sort of longer films broken down into different episodes. But this is the first multi-season TV series. It's the most successful crowdfunding TV series of all time. It is free to watch for anyone with a phone, a computer, or a smart TV. And the director, Dallas Jenkins, his vision was to reveal Jesus to people in a way that they've never seen before, to communicate the gospel. Estimates vary, but the basic estimate is, estimate is 108 million people have watched it around the world. It's been translated into so many different languages. If you've not seen it, it's in season three. Binge watch one and two and catch up. It revolves around, obviously, the life and ministry of Jesus and the lives of the early disciples and his followers as they begin to discover who Jesus is. And there is artistic storytelling. It's a Hollywood production. But it's wonderfully done. And my favorite scenes are the calling of Peter and the miraculous catch of fish. Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. So moving that you cry. The woman with the issue of blood who just touched the hem of his garment. But in all the stories I was sharing with the, the team the other week, with all the stories that we're watching as the drama unfolds and the disciples are wondering what's going on, and I'm just watching it, and I'm, in my heart I'm saying, I want Jesus to turn up. You know, they're going through all the confusion of what's going on, and I'm saying, I just want Jesus to turn up. Because when Jesus turns up, everything changes. When Jesus turns up, he brings the kingdom into every situation. When Jesus turns up, Amazing things happen. And I was rightfully reminded by Edward that Jesus is here. That's why I started with that prayer of Jesus when he said, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am here in the midst. He is here. And this wonderful promise in Matthew 28 when he says, I'm with you always. To the very end of the age. When Jesus turns up, everything changes. So I just want to remind you, not trying to spoil it, because it is the most amazing passage, just to remind you of these eight things that are brought to mind. Jesus is God's true and final prophetic voice. Although the author contrasts the old and the new, he emphasizes the continuity of, continuity of the old and new testaments. Jesus does not come to get rid of the Old Testament. He comes to fulfill the Old Testament. In the past, God spoke at many times in various ways, but now he has spoken fully, decisively, finally, perfectly. For example, Ezekiel portrayed the glory of God. He spoke of the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. Isaiah expounded the nature of God as holy, righteous, merciful. Jesus is holy, righteous, merciful. Jeremiah described the power of God 
Jesus displays it in every way, over nature, over sickness, over sin, over death itself. And Jesus' coming brings that new era, a new covenant. We are in the last days because Jesus has come. Secondly, God, Jesus is God the Son. For those whose faith was faltering, because they may have come to regard Jesus or be confused as whether he's just a good man. Maybe a captivating teacher. Maybe a, a worker of miracles. That is not enough. Jesus cannot be compared with any other religious teacher or leader. He is God, the Son. The writer reminds them that Jesus is so much more with other writers like Paul and John and others who have discovered that Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. And the sonship of Jesus is a recurrent theme through this message. One of the commentaries um, that I've been reading is entitled Sonship and Salvation. That's what this message is about. Without the Son, without Jesus, there is no salvation. There is only one name given under heaven, and the name is Jesus, by which we may be saved. That's what the Bible tells us. We can't be saved through another name. And the name that heaven gave us was Jesus, means Savior. His name is above all names. He has no rival. He has no equal, as we sometimes sing, now and forever he reigns. Thirdly, Jesus is the heir of all things. He has been appointed heir of all things. He will inherit not only this earth, but the entire universe and creation. And Jesus shares this inheritance with all those who would believe in his name. Because as we believe in his name, we become children of God, sons and daughters of the living God. So we become co-heirs with Christ. Fourthly, Jesus is the creator of all things. The author takes us directly from Jesus' destiny in the future, the heir of all things, to his role in the beginning of creation. That with the Father and the Holy Spirit, he was there from the very beginning. It's closely linked with this idea of inheritance, that what the Son was to possess, he was instrumental in making in the first place. The hands that shaped the universe and summoned the galaxies into being were the hands that were nailed to a cross. And through his suffering has brought all those who believe into this inheritance. Fifthly, Jesus is the personification of God's glory. For the Jewish people, the glory of God was visible, a visible and outward expression of the majestic presence of God. When the law was given to Moses, the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain. Likewise, the glory of the Lord became manifest in the tabernacle or the tent of meeting and then the temple. Signs of God's presence. Jesus is proclaimed here. It's the radiance of God's glory. And the word radiance means sort of coming out from. But it also can mean a mirror image. 
a reflection. But nowhere has the glory of God been most clearly seen, perfectly seen, than in Jesus. And then he goes further. Jesus is God's perfect revelation, the exact representation of his being. As Paul would say, who in very nature God, Jesus, who in very nature God, or John would say, and the word was God from the beginning. All the attributes of God are visible in Jesus. If we would see God, look at Jesus. The word nature here in Greek is hypostasis, which means the very essence or very being. Jesus is the very essence and being of God. It's the mystery of the Trinity, isn't it? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Always a tricky one on Alpha when we haven't got it right in 2,000 years. We haven't sorted it out and say, well, explain the Trinity to me. Well, a bit of a tough one. But it's how we encounter God. I didn't believe in God. I'd rejected any notion of God until I met Jesus. And then Jesus introduced me to a heavenly father who loved me so much that he sent his one and only son to die for me. And when I met Jesus, he filled me with his Holy Spirit. I believe in Trinity because I met them. It's how we encounter God. Three in one, mystery. I'm, mm. Seventh. Jesus is the cosmic sustainer. He made it. He will remake it in the end. But in the meantime, he holds it and keeps it going. Who keeps the planets in orbit? I mean, scientists will spend all their lives wondering about this. And some have come to the conclusion that actually it's Jesus who holds everything just by his word. Every passionate Jew believed that God kept the universe in the hollow of his hand. The writer here says Jesus holds the universe in his hands. The hands that were pierced for us. The wonder of it all that your name, my name, is engraved in his palms. So when it's tough, when there's a battle, when we're tempted to say, is it worth it? If I were God, I would have done it all differently. I, I, I know that. How many of us have said that? If I were God, I would have done that differently. I'd have sorted it all out. My life would have been different. I've just been reading through Job in the Bible in one year. Gosh. It's a great book, but yeah. I've just got to the bit when God answers. <laughs> Makes you feel a little bit small. Where were you when I made the foundations of the earth? Well, okay. Yeah, perhaps I protest too much. why the writer says we need a vision of Jesus. 
It's why when the church comes under pressure, and whatever that pressure may be, whether we're believers in North Korea or Afghanistan or whatever, we are all pursued, we are all persecuted. The church is under pressure in this nation like in most subtle of ways, and the pressure is to abandon Jesus and to take our eyes off Jesus and to fix them on all sorts of other things, and we are here to say, no, it's all about him. It's all about him. We won't take our eyes off him because he is worth it all. If you've ever wondered, is it worth it? Or you're here and you're not yet a believer and you think, is it worth me actually trusting in this Jesus? Who else are you going to trust? And then weigh it up. Who else are you going to trust? What? Other truth have you heard that is better than the one that God loves you so much that he came for you to rescue you. He has done it all. You don't have to earn it. You just receive his love. Your sins are completely forgiven, washed away. You have an eternity in heaven where it's going to be so brilliant. We cannot even begin to imagine what it will be like when Jesus comes again and makes all things new. Tell me if you've got a better offer elsewhere. Oh, no, but it's not like that. It's about trust. I can't trust. I can't believe. I can't get over the line. Who doesn't want you over the line? These opening verses, I am convinced they are designed to bring us to our knees. Because only then can we stand on our feet. I want to say that again because... When I wrote it down, I thought, and I put a star next to it saying, read again. These opening verses are designed to bring us to our knees in worship because only then can we stand up on our feet. Because when you've come to that place where you've looked at Jesus, then you can stand up, then you can walk. It's when we don't that we can be blown off course. Finally, Jesus is the saviour of the world, the unique sacrifice. He's the author of redemption. This will become the central theme of this message. Jesus is ceaselessly the radiance of God's glory. He continuously upholds the universe and sustains it. But when he gave himself up on the cross, and he gave himself for the joy set before him, you were the joy. You were the joy set before him. To save you, he went to the cross. That's the joy for Jesus. He shed his blood once for all. At that single moment in time, nothing can take that away. No repetition of that saving act will ever be necessary. We don't have to earn it or procure it in any means of our own. We just receive it. It's all grace, and it all comes from Jesus. The work on the cross is a finished work. The priests had to keep repeating the sacrifices. Jesus says it is finished once for all. And he sat down. Did you notice that he sat down? 
finished. That one sentence, beginning of Hebrews, kicks us off into this amazing message. And he's answering that question, is it worth it? And he's saying, he is worth it. So let's come and look up and worship Jesus. And whatever the cost is today to worship him with everything that we have, with every breath that we have, through the tears that we're expressing, whatever situation, we will worship him who is all of these things. Should we do that? Amen. Let's just pray as the band comes.